0: For Pacifica Radio, January the 4th, 2024, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director at anti and author of the book Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, almost, and I mean almost, 6,000 of them now, going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash Show and the rest of the podcatchers and video sites and things. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at scotthortonshow. All right, I'm very happy to welcome this week's guest, genuine American hero... Matthew Ho, he was a Marine in Iraq War II, where he won medals for saving guys' lives. Then he went to work for the U.S. State Department, where he quit in disgust, very publicly, in the summer of 2009. And said, Barack Obama, do not double down on this war in Afghanistan. It ain't going to work. Don't do it. Here's all the cover you need to not do it. And then what happened was the Ambassador Eikenberry, who had been the general in charge, he backed up Matthew Ho. And he said, You know what? This guy is right. Don't do it, Barack Obama. Hide behind me, buddy. I used to be the general in charge of this war. And you know what Barack Obama did? He threw Matthew Ho and General uh, Ambassador Eikenberry under the bus, and he tripled the war anyway because he's a moral and other kind of coward, too. And so that was how the Afghan surge happened, despite Matthew Ho's best efforts to stop it. And, uh, of course, as you guys know, we regularly talk with Daniel L. Davis, and he's the one who came out three years later and blew the whistle and said, yeah, it didn't work. Stop saying it did. we got to get out now. And if we pretend that we won the war, we're going to have worse consequences, which is, of course, what we all saw play out right in front of our eyes in 2021, just like Matthew Ho told you was going to happen. So anyway... Welcome back to the show, Matthew. How are you doing, dude? Good, Scott. It's good to be back on with
1: you. Uh, just a, a quick correction in your very generous uh, uh, bio for me, but I, I never saved anyone's life or got any medals for anything like that.
0: Uh, Wait, I thought the guys th- their their truck flipped over into the river and you jumped in and saved them and all that. Well,
1: no, no we were in a helicopter crash. Uh, went into the went into the 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 reservoir, and uh, yeah, nobody survived. No one survived, unfortunately.
0: I'm sorry about that, dude. I had a whole thing in my head about what happened there that was in wrong.
1: The, I mean, I got cited for, you know, and we did, we went in to try and save them, but no, you know, no one, the, the, no one was, was, was saved, you know? And, and it, the, the crazy thing was, was that, thank God it was our helicopter that crashed because the other crap helicopter was full of Iraqi detainees. And those guys were all hoods over their heads, hands flex cuffs behind their backs. They would have all died kind of thing those guys weren't surviving that you know so you know but yeah it was a terrible terrible thing and that was one of the things that really starts propelling me in one my own moral injury but also to uh the uh, why am I going along with this you know having one of them was a friend of mine who died and so having to go and see trains kids you know and his little boy asked me how come you didn't do more to save my dad You know, things like that, like just like you'd see in a movie, like that type of experience. And, you know, that's where it starts to really it had already been there, but now it's it's where it's pinpricks for me at that point. Now it's starting to be, you know, full on uh, slashes, you know, uh, on my on me. So, yeah, it was it was a pretty defining experience that that one experience. A lot
0: of them were. But uh, yeah. Dan, yeah, I'm sorry it. for bringing that up, dude.
1: No, it's okay. No, well, it's okay. You know, it also, too, what it does is it gets to the idea that so much of this this stuff is mythologized, right? So much of this is, is is you know, geography, you know, about the war, uh, you know, about uh, how many walk in the Barnes and Noble and how many books are critical about the war and how many are these catalogs of triumph of what, you know, American heroes did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And at the end, it's what, oh, we actually lost that war? You know, uh, so it, it's important, I think, to, to discuss uh, what really happened and how just horrific it all is, the, the personal costs of it. But how for like in my case, as we talk about these things and if I talk about my life, my experience, well, that was 06 when that happened, December of 06. And I still went along with it for almost three more years. Like that's how willing I was to lie to myself about it. That's how much I have been conditioned by whether it was like, you know, the military or it was our society, how much I want to be like a loyal servant of the empire, how much I have my own ambitions, how much I was afraid to break away from it, afraid to grapple with the truth that all these lies were actually real. All these things I had heard about the uh, and I read in my own cognitive dissonance, it was real. And then everything I told myself about how, well, this is separate from what American history was, that there's not a continuous line of history or an arc of history. So all those books I have read about, say, the Vietnam War and Halberstam's the best and the brightest and she hands a bright, shining lie. Well, that was then. It doesn't apply now. Right. So uh, all of that I had to grapple with. And that was a large part of the moral injury I was enduring. And it was so bad that I wanted to kill myself. You know, I mean, so yeah, if you want to keep this stuff in, happy to, because it's all part of what you all have been doing for your entire adult lives in the anti war community because you've known this stuff. And it took people like me to have these experiences to get to face it and to find the strength and the courage to say, okay, I'm not going to go along with this anymore, even though for a whole host of reasons it would be better for me to go along with it.
0: So, as part of your story, then, then, you wanted to go ahead and leave the Marine Corps, go to the State Department, and go to Afghanistan because maybe that'll be different. We'll give it another shot there. Is that yeah. kind of what's going on there?
1: Absolutely. So actually, when I'm at still in Iraq at that point, my uh, and I was a I was a a, a, a reservist. I had voluntarily mobilized uh, to take this company over to Iraq. You know, I had been to Iraq before on a State Department team and I was still in the Marine Corps reserves, and here's a chance for me. And and you just lie to yourself, right? So the reasons why I've been in Iraq for a year, I was in the Secretary of Navy's office at the Pentagon, then I went to Iraq, was on the State Department team for a year in Iraq, came back, went to the State Department, was on the Iraq desk, and I just didn't believe in the war. I knew it was unwinnable. I knew it was a huge mistake. It was making things worse. But, you know, you, you lie to yourself. So the first lies you tell yourself was, well, I can be I can have a good presence in the in the zone around me and the things that I am personally connecting with, I can be a moral actor, which is just an obscene folly, because, you know, the war will make you its agent, you will be an agent of the war's immorality, no matter what you think, you know, of yourself, no matter what you think you will do, Uh, you know, but then you start doing things like when I was at the State Department. Um, you know, and I get this this email from Fourth uh, Marine Division, which is the reserve division in the Marine Corps, saying, "Hey, we're looking for these people to volunteer for the upcoming Iraq uh, rotation." And you know, seeing what they wanted was someone just like me. Uh, you know, you say, "Well, you know, I'm a pretty good officer." if i go over there i'll bring back guys alive while these other guys i know won't i mean so you start Mm -hmm. you know again it's one lie one excuse upon another and when those fall apart you fall onto another one so i actually by the time i'm leaving iraq my second time my regimental commander had I, i was supposed to go to uh following iraq i was supposed to go to the u.s senate and be a marine corps liaison in the u.s senate and I decided not doing it, I'm not going to the US Senate and lie from the Marine Corps about this war, I'm not mm. going to do it. And <clears throat> one thing after another, I end up back uh, working on counter IED stuff as a contractor, you know, some, I, I was all set to go into commercial construction, and I get a phone call from uh, like a recruiter. And he says, Yeah, I'm looking at your your background, your experience, and you can save a lot of lives with this experience. If you come work with us. At JIDO, it was called the Joint IED Defeat Organization. So the mm-hmm. counter IED organization. IED is improvised explosive devices, roadside bombs, suicide bombers, car bombs, etc. Uh, you can come save a lot of lives with us. And so, you know, they, they pull on your heartstrings and you're back in it, right? You're like Michael Corleone, the guy. They bring you back in, you know. And um, but yeah, I mean, my thoughts going to the State Department, though, were that, uh, yeah, this war was going to be different that the war in Afghanistan was a war that had at least some strategic purpose. There was some real value to the national interests of the United States, uh, as well as that this there was uh, the possibility, though I, I didn't really agree with it, but I was giving it the benefit of the doubt, that of the safe haven argument, that you do have to go into these uh, homelands, if you will, uh, to not allow these spaces for terror groups to thrive or to at least plant their flag and say, we own this, um, which is just all complete BS. I know you've talked about this a lot, Scott, the whole myth of the, the terrorist safe haven. Um, and once I was in Afghanistan, I was completely disabused of all that. I saw that the war in Afghanistan was fundamentally no different than the war in Iraq, uh, that the people in the bomb administration were no different than the people in the the Bush administration, uh, that the only thing that mattered If you're going to compare and contrast Iraq and Afghanistan, the only thing that mattered was that the US was occupying those countries. That's it, nothing else mattered. You could spend all day comparing and contrasting uh, what the Iraqis and the Afghans eat for lunch, you know, the colors of their uniforms, their recent history, how their the religions are alike, but different, You, you could spend all day doing that, but none of that matters. Because the only thing that mattered was that the U.S. was occupying these people. They were uh, utilizing a a divide and conquer strategy and that they were only making the war worse. And as long as we were there, that's how it was going to continue to proceed. So, yeah, after being there for five months, seeing the escalation of the war uh, in Afghanistan, knowing that uh, it was going not just the war was unwinnable, that the war was going to get worse with the escalation. Yeah, I resigned in protest.
0: Yeah. And look, the timing is everything there for people who were too young or not paying attention or were on the wrong side of it. Back then in 2009, Obama, of course, was sworn in in January and then began a massive campaign by David Petraeus, John McCain, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mullen and Secretary of Defense Gates, uh, along with uh, General McChrystal as well. And the entire War Party PR machine, the, especially led by the Center for the New American Security, which was sort of the Democrats' PNAC, mm-hmm. to push so hard. They called them the Coindinistas, pushing this counterinsurgency doctrine and the absolute necessity of Barack Obama sending 70,000 more troops. They always call it 30, but there was the 30 after he already sent 40. Right. And so the big argument by November was the final 30. And Obama rolled over on what we know, and as I show in both of my books, what he knew could not possibly succeed. When you came out and blew the whistle in, it was August, right, of 09? It was uh, September.
1: September, Yeah, it was September when I resigned. Uh, It was October by the time it was in the paper.
0: All right. Well, still, he had a good, you know, 35 days or more, um, you know, to... uh, Oh, like my, my letter, my and resignation He must have known letter. that you were right. Because yeah. we already know from other reporting what he knew and said about the whole thing. So it's easy to infer that when you came forward and he read what you had to say in the Washington Post and all of these things, that he knew you were right. There's no room for the argument that Obama disagreed with Ho. No, he just thought it would be better for my political skin if I go along with John McCain rather than fight him on this. That was what it came down to. Not the right or wrong of the war because he knew you were right. About yeah, uh,
1: President Obama would have read my letter around September 15th, September 16th because Richard Holdbrook gave it to him personally. And yeah, uh, Holbrook, who had agreed with ninety five percent of what he said, of what I wrote uh, according to Holbrook, also to Sherrod Cooper Coles, who was Holbrook's uh, British counterpart. So I, both, I met them both in the you know it's a surreal thing. You're coming out of those types of experience, and you're there in Afghanistan, and a few days later, you're in the Waldorf Astoria, uh, you know, in New York City, mm-hmm. talking with Richard Holbrook and Sherrod Cooper Coles. Uh, you know, and they're both telling you that they agree with you about this war yeah uh, you know, and they're That's telling huge. you the you know but but I know President Obama did read the letter and it would have been around September fifteenth, September 16th, and I also know that he was asked about it several times uh, so he was aware of all this and, and he just didn't have the courage and I'll tell another story, Scott, if you want so John Murtha, who was the former House Democrat, uh, who was one of the first to turn against the Iraq War mm-hmm. of those Democrats who had supported against who had supported the war? Murther was a Marine in Vietnam. He was very powerful in the Democratic Party and in the, in the Democratic House Caucus. He, uh, for uh, reasons that's another story we we I could tell tell. Um, he brought me in in November and had me speak to the whole. Uh, house caucus the whole democratic house caucus so you know here i am in november uh, you know very forest gump like experiences like how did i get myself into this and i'm sitting i'm standing there uh with mirtha along with ike skelton and um jessica Tuchman. Uh, from and I think she was at Brookings or Carnegie at the time, who's the daughter of Barbara Tuchman, who wrote such great books as The Guns of August and, and things. Mm-hmm. But it was a debate: uh, John Murtha and myself versus Ike Skelton, and Barbara Tuchman, in front of the entire House Democratic Caucus. All, you know, and the House Democratic Caucus erupted in response to what Murtha and I were saying. This was mid-November of, of 2009, and stacked up nine, 10, 12 people deep behind a couple of microphones to all make their comments and all the comments were, we can't go along with this. It was, this is, this is what Bush did. This is what we did in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And this goes on for 15, 20 minutes of these members of of Congress. Oh, I thought you were
0: saying that they were browbeating you. No, they all got up to agree
1: with you. They got all up to agree with us. And then what happens is you see this hand shoot up out of the crowd. And it's Speaker Pelosi and the Speaker's privilege. So she gets to talk before, you know, over everybody else, basically. And what she says is, I agree with you. Yes, this is, and I'm going to paraphrase here, this is wrong. However, this is not the President's priority. The President's priority is the Affordable Care Act, It's, it's, you know, Obamacare. And if we put him into a box, if we paint him into a corner on this, we are jeopardizing the President's agenda. We just cannot do this. We do not have the political space. To do this right now, the, the 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 political calculus was that yes, this war is wrong. A lot of young American kids are going to get killed over there for no reason. We're going to make the circuit situation worse. It's going to uh, hurt American security. But however, the president's priority is not this, so we have to put this on the back burner. And what then happens? What you see happening then is certain members of Congress, certain members of the House caucus. Ah uh, Democratic caucus are allowed to bang the drum on this, right? Because they have enough votes where it, it, it it's not going to cause enough of a of a disruption. Um, and I, I witnessed this for the next uh, year and a half, almost two years. Because as we get, so what happens in Obama goes to West Point, as you were talking about, does his big, sur- his big escalation speech, big surge speech at West Point in December of 2009. And he also says, we're going to pull out, though, we're going to start pulling out, we're going to start winding this down in 18 months. And you can see the White House managing this among members of both the House and the Senate in terms of authorizing them, giving them the okay to now stand up against this war. As they get closer to that, that July 2011, we're going to start widening this war down date, more members of the Democratic Party are allowed to say, yes, this is the right thing to do. And it wasn't just the Democrats that knew this, it was the Republicans that knew this as well, because, and they did the same thing. You know, say, allowed thousands of American kids to get killed and maimed, tens of thousands of Afghans to just be lost to history, killed without any recognition of who they are, a destruction of an entire country, on and on and on. Um, I was met one time with Michael Steele, who, if people remember Michael Steele, he was the former chair of the Republican National Committee. And Steele was always putting his foot in his mouth. And he said to me, you know what's the Biggest flack I ever got into, the biggest the biggest thing I ever did that caused me problems was saying in the summer of 2011 that President Obama was right and we should begin getting out of Afghanistan. He said, I had members of Republican members of the House and the Senate calling me up saying, Steele, you know, you're right about this. This war is wrong. We need to get out. But you can't say that and that's the reality of our political system, you know. And so if anyone's surprised at how we can go along, how not just go along, we can fully fund and support and make sh- and, and 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 you know, a, an unwinnable war in Ukraine, sacrificing how many hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians as pawns or you know, fully enabling and supporting a genocide in Palestine. This is who we are. This is our system and this is the people that run the system.
0: Yep. Hey, y'all. Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and in terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, They're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760 or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Hey y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com and if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, They'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great top lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertasbella from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com and it is essentially public choice theory right is it's a clunky name for the idea that government employees are individuals and they serve their own interests and nobody knows what the national interest is maybe you and your friends at the bar know what the national interest is cuz you're thinking about somebody other than yourself you don't have a direct connection to you know what happens only just you want to live in a free country at peace or something crazy like that you know but when you're in charge you have all these other things like the affordable care act that dictates that you triple a war and kill a few hundred thousand people and you go well yeah but political calculation on a piece of paper something something in a way that is quite frankly psychopathic but makes perfect political sense you know what i mean It is what it is. And Barack Obama made the calculation. If he escalated the war, the liberals were going to forgive him. At least he promised to get us out of Iraq and they were going to not care. Um, Whereas whatever political capital he gained from getting us out of the war, he would have to deal with McCain and Graham. And by the way, and as I know you understand, I guess it's important too, that in Iraq War II, they fought for the supermajority who told them, thanks for helping us win. Now get the hell out. That regime still stands. I mean, that parliament is still the parliament of Iraq. Not that America has much influence there, but still. In Afghanistan, there was no such thing. We saw what happened when America left Afghanistan. The army and the government completely fell apart, and it was an absolute catastrophe. And that's what would have happened if Obama had ended that war, too, back then. And so the political capital, Biden took the hit because what the hell, it was the 2020s by the time Biden cried uncle. And so he was able to take the hit and he still took a lot of criticism for it. And people have some idea that there was a proper way to leave that would have left that government intact just because they don't know anything about it. But that was what Obama was facing. He was facing either triple the war or lose it in a way that he wasn't gonna have to face like total humiliation upon leaving Iraq, not until he backed Al-Qaeda in Syria next door, until it blew up into the caliphate a couple years later, but that's a separate story, right? But-
1: And and, you know, and we had with Obama, you had uh, people like David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel, his senior political advisor, Uh, Emanuel was his chief of staff, who were telling him things like the drone strikes, this extrajudicial execution program, assassination program will make you look tough. This will be good for you politically. And on the same vein, you had the same conversations occurring. You can see this because there's no reference. You know, Woodward's books are really important to read, right? I mean, they, they, they and what's always amazing, like particularly in Woodward's book about Obama's decision to escalate the war in Afghanistan is there's no reference at all to any type of domestic political calculations. And I have witnessed it firsthand. I had seen it right right in front of me and all that's absent. And so you're telling me that Emmanuel and Axelrod weren't saying to the president, "Look, President, you know, Mister Mr. President, if you pull these troops out of Afghanistan and then a bomb goes off, some guy tries to blow up a uh, propane tank in Times Square, right? You know, you are going to be blamed for it, and this will. And what they were able to do, and this is what you know, I, I think, really informs, shows the success of the anti-war movement." Although uh, it was a very fleeting success because the way the United States, the empire fights its wars, they simply evolved. But you go to the point where by 2010, even though we have a quarter million man army in Afghanistan that's losing and is going to lose, we have 100,000 American troops, 100,000 contractors, 40,000 NATO troops, we're spending $100 billion a year on that war, and it's going to make no difference, It's only going to make things worse. In 2010, I just looked this up the other day. The um, uh, uh, in 2010 midterm elections, Afghanistan was the top issue for three percent of American voters. Meanwhile, in 2006, the Iraq War was the top issue by far, and the Iraq War was dominant in the 2008 elections. That's how you know, arguably, Barack Obama becomes president. That's how he beats Hillary Clinton, and arguably, how he beats John McCain as well. But by 2010. The White House is so good at managing its narrative, managing the 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 the, the political the the media, uh, 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 you know, uh, circus, if you will, for lack of a better term, that they are able to get only. But also, too, you got to remember circumstances like you were talking about before, Scott, as they were 2010. What was also happening? You had the Great Recession. 10 million Americans were in the process of losing their homes. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, so you know th- th- that allows. Obama to 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 escalate this war uh you know make things worse kill a lot of people uh and then as well too just ensure the Americans are stuck we're stuck in in, in Afghanistan for another 10 years don't get out as you said until 2021 and even then my belief on that is why Biden went along with it was I really believe that the uh, the idea was that we were going to transition in Afghanistan to a CIA special operations war. We'd have Mm -hmm. our proxies there, of course, and that determination been made that we can do like what we're doing all throughout Africa, we can do in Afghanistan. And this relieves the Army, the Navy, the Air Force of all their requirements. And the Army can focus on uh, Europe and the Navy and Air Force can focus on China, et cetera. Uh, But I mean, you see how this all evolves. And so even though we had that success, uh, the anti-war movement had that success. Uh, the the ability of the administrations, whether they be republic or Democrat, and, and of course, then the larger empire, to stay one step ahead or evolve is something that we have to keep in mind because now we, we after all those wars, we're still seeing what almost a trillion dollars in defense spending, more, more like what a trillion three, trillion four when you count in veterans' care and other things like that. Uh, you know, as well as these proxy wars, and we're witnessing this horror occurring in Eastern Europe that has made us all tremendously uh, unsafe. You know, brought us to the brink of 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 uh, World War Three, basically. And then, of course, we are witnessing this uh, this genocide occurring in Palestine.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, in Afghanistan, I called it in fool's air the least supported and least opposed war in American history. Cause that was what the polls showed was nobody right. supported the war at all. Support for the war was like 13% or right. was it 30 or whatever? It was less than that. It wasn't It was even on the list of issues that concern you at all anywhere. And that was like the, the list was like the top 35 answers or something. And it wasn't even on there at all. It might as well not have even been happening.
1: In 2013, it becomes the most unpopular war in American history. So in public opinion, polling uh, Vietnam, Iraq, Right. Never had high, as high unapproval ratings as the Afghan war
0: did. Right. But uh, again, with no urgency whatsoever behind right. that opposition. And right. That's, that's exactly right. This is the craziest yeah. thing. Um,
1: yeah. But that was all I think that, again, that's an important thing to understand. This is how they fight the wars now. So we, it's too politically costly to have American forces on the ground taking casualties. So use secret forces, CIA, special operations, drones. Use contractors, because contractors don't count. Bin Laden, suicide
0: bomber brigades, too. Yeah, right? And
1: proxy forces. But most people don't realize that more contractors, so these are men and women who would have been doing job, wearing a uniform doing jobs that in previous wars, American military personnel have been doing, but had now been outsourced. You have more contractors killed in Iraq and Afghanistan than you did American uh, service members, right? So the true number of KIA in Iraq and Afghanistan is not 7,000. It's really about 15,000 when you include the contractors, but those don't count. And then, of course, the proxy forces, right? You know, as long as brown people are killing brown people, black people killing black people, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really count
0: not for the american media anyway and it's true i mean the terror wars never ended and it seemed like there was a little bit of a lull there but uh you know we're just out of time to talk about the current wars they came up a couple times in this conversation but instead we talked about afghanistan which i'm glad we did because it's such an important deal and it's Almost unbelievably wonderfully true that that war is over and American forces are out of there. If there's any kind of deniable forces there in some sort of agreement with the Taliban or something, that would be news to me. I mean, I think we are really gone. And the last thing they did there was they claimed a drone strike against Ayman al-Zawahiri. That was the last thing we heard about out of there. And I don't know if that was ever confirmed. And I also don't know where that drone strike was launched from. But doesn't seem like, you know, they talked about an over-the-horizon force. Well, Afghanistan is over a few horizons from anywhere. And unless the Pakistanis are, uh, you know, going ahead and giving up bases that they had refused before, then they don't really have a flight path into Afghanistan. Unless Putin's going to give them one, which I think is off for now, Matt.
1: I don't know if they can reach it from the Gulf with the drones. I, I really, off will top of my head, have to look up and see how far they could reach with, with them from, like, you know, from, from, from uh, um, Qatar or something like that. But I mean, isn't it funny, Persia. though, Scott? Isn't it funny how um, we have to occupy, have this war in Afghanistan for 20 years because of Al-Qaeda, and a, within a year of us leaving, we kill Zahiri, right? Isn't it funny how that worked out, you know? And now if you look at how the Taliban have been doing against the Islamic State, and just really, uh, 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 really going after and putting, putting a a, a, really limiting the Islamic State, killing a lot of them, really limiting their ability to operate, you know, this, this, why couldn't, why couldn't this have been the path forward? against well, these groups. Yeah, exactly
0: right? right. I mean, they claimed that they were replicating the surge in the counterinsurgency doctrine from Iraq war two, but if that was the case, they would have allied with the Taliban against any Arabs in the country that would have been replicating the strategy of the Sunni awakening and all that, but they didn't do that whatsoever. So the whole thing That's, of course was completely that, bunk.
1: I made that argument. I made those arguments all throughout the, 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 the brief time I was there from spring, summer, of '09, and that's one of the reasons why I resigned because they refused to do that. They just refused to talk to the other side because they wanted military victory because that was best for their own egos, for their own individual careers, for the mm-hmm. institutions, and most especially for you know we want the we want you know we we want to show that a Democrat can be a better Commander in Chief yep, than a Republican can.
0: They always do that. It's You know, the incentive structure there is so bad. And, of course, the great American fraud, David Petraeus, who somehow is still turned to as some sort of expert after losing Iraq War II, losing Afghanistan, supporting al-Qaeda in Libya and Syria, and leaking above-top-secret classified documents to his mistress— they still go, geez, what do you think we should do? Great American fraud, worst general since McClellan, absolute disgrace of an American whose entire family should have been exiled from here. What's your opinion, sir? And then he says, well, we got to double down, whether we're talking about, you know, Eastern Europe or Asia or support for Israel or anything else. some amazing. And this stuff
1: only is going to continue, Scott, right? Because what are the current generations of American officers learning that to get to that spot, to get to the point where, remember, they, there are members of Congress who wanted to give Petraeus a fifth star, right? To get to this point where you're going to be the guy who goes out and flips the coin at the Super Bowl like Petraeus has, right? You want to be an American general like that? You got to act like Petraeus, which means that you have to be a political general, a media general, a celebrity general, but you also have to lie. Look at John Kirby, i mean look how much that i mean anyone who wants to rise that level to represent the president of the united states on foreign policy matters in front of the press guess what they're learning from watching john kirby right be as much of a of a snake be as disingenuous as possible stand go out and just practice pissing on people's legs and tell them it's raining go out and do that every day and you will get to be john kirby that's you know i mean that's the lessons that people are learning and i when i was in iraq one last story when i was in iraq my first time, and Petraeus was in charge of the training command, Minstiki, as we call it. Uh, I won't try and remember what the acronym stands for, multinational something or other. Um, the, uh, you know, famously lost several hundred thousand weapons, right? Lost in quotes, right? Uh-huh. Out to the, the Sunni
0: insurgents in Mosul. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> well, no, this is when he was in Baghdad. So he had, oh, to had the... been. Shiites. So he... Yeah, to the shit, right? So when he, all those weapons have been transferred to the basically the border brigades and everything, right? right. And um, well, when he was in Mosul, they were upset with him because he had fudged the numbers. So what happens in Mosul? is Petraeus, this is this is the immediate aftermath of the invasion. He occupies Mosul with his division, and after a year there, and you're constantly sent, they're constantly sending reports to these commanders how well things are going, and that then informs the Pentagon who are you going to send next to replace these guys. And Petraeus had a full division up there. And basically, he says things are going so well up there that you can replace us with less than a division. And what you have is you have basically a reinforced brigade go up to Mosul rather than the division go into Mosul. And, you know, then, of course, all hell breaks loose after that occurs because there's not enough troops, basically. But then Petraeus, of course, is rewarded because remember, by this time he had already been I think he'd already been on the cover of Time magazine or Newsweek or whatever with, is this the man who can save Iraq? And but it, when he was in Baghdad, then running this training command, which complete catastrophe in a whole bunch of different ways, um, including arming all these militias, as we just discussed, he. Uh, The generals where I were at, the generals I would be around, they hated this guy. They absolutely hated him. All these infantry and armor, uh, one star and two stars and three stars, they all hated him. Uh, because, and they would say things like, uh, Petraeus is coming, make sure he lands at the large LZ because he's going to have those two extra helicopters full of journalists, make sure there's three extra rows of seats for Petraeus's, you know, uh, entourage. You know, they would say stuff like this all the time. They hated the guy. And these were men who you never saw make comments like this. Like, so you knew Petraeus was a special case, but what it was was Petraeus knew what he was doing. He was very, very, uh, calculated in his approach to this and knew that his personal success, you know, and I think he did believe that he could win the war by himself or that his he was the next uh, Patton or MacArthur or Eisenhower or Grant or whoever. He really, you know, you have all those different levels of warfare or generations of warfare, whatever we're in now, the fifth generation or sixth generation or whatever. He thought he was going to be the hero of that generation. Uh, and I think he
0: still does. Yeah. And he might get away with it, too. <laughs> you know yeah oh very, I, very like, like there's okay. not enough I, of I, us lousy kids i guess you know
1: yeah no i mean i i guarantee at some point you'll drive over a bridge somewhere and it'll be the david petraeus bridge and then they'll have the <laughs> david petraeus chow hall no at question. west point or whatever yep. you know and then you know uh so yeah
0: might as well all right you guys that's the great matthew ho Marine Corps, State Department, and most importantly, heroic whistleblower of the Afghan War, and great commentator about our current wars as well. We just got caught up talking history today, which was great. But um, you can read all about him in my book, Fool's Errand, as well. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Matthew. Appreciate it.
1: Hey, thanks, Scott. Happy New Year, man.
0: You too. All right, you guys, that's Anti-War Radio for today. I'm Scott Horton. Go to scotthorton.org or follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And I'm here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.